Isn't that good? I remember specifically, yeah. I remember specifically where Mako and I were. We were in Pasadena living in, in a little apartment when that happened. And it just, uh, it gets seared in, not only into like your own personal memory, but into uh, our collective conscience. My, my daughter, who wasn't even born yet, she knows. She knows, she knows about this event. And, um, and we can't forget it. And it's, I, I, God is, God's really interesting to me because for a lot of different reasons. But um, we're on Amos today, and I wasn't even, you'd think that I planned it out, but I didn't. I had, I had no planning in this at all, but we're going to be covering the book of Amos. If you're familiar with it, it's, it's a book on justice. That's the main theme, is justice. And uh, it's a big deal for God. He, he's very, very concerned about justice, and we need to actually get it inside of us and needs to be part of a, needs to be one of the defining parts of the Christian faith. All right, so I'm going to, I have an introductory scripture that, that I'm going to read before we kind of pick the book apart. Uh, this is uh, chapter 5, Amos chapter 5, verse 21. And before I read it, I want, I'm 100% confident that God is pleased with our worship this morning. Did you feel the sweet presence of God here? Okay, so I'm not reading it because I'm trying to like, you know, you'll, you'll see what I mean in a few minutes. But worship is a, it's a sacred thing, and we do it for God. You are in the band. You, we're, you're not being entertained. You are the entertainer. You're entertaining God. We're ministering to the Lord when we come to church on Sunday. It is for him. It's not for you. And so... I, I'm the, the very sense that I got is God's very pleased with our worship this morning. You came expecting, and God did a work on your hearts, and you opened up your hearts to him. And he, he, heard, he heard your prayers. He received your worship. It was a sweet and pleasing aroma for him. I'm really excited Whenever my worship is received well by God. And this is the desire that I have for this church, that God always receives our worship and he's pleased with it. But there's, there's a trap. There's a danger. And Amos, he's going to hit on this danger. And so I want us as a church just to be aware of it. I want us not to become complacent, not to get you know used to the, the presence of God in a certain way where we just take it for granted. Don't want to have God's blessings just be ordinary. They're not. They're extraordinary. I don't want us to get rotten inside. So listen to this. This will make sense. The Lord says to his people, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with your noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. 
What's he saying? He's saying he's not happy with their worship. That's a scary thought. You know that that can happen to us? It can. Like we can just kind of get into entertainment mode or whatever. But like if our hearts aren't right, like John said, like God's doing a work on your heart. And if your heart's not right, your worship will stink. And it will not, not only will it not minister to the Lord, it won't bless you either. Like you just, you're just going to get grumpy and cranky and cynical. Then he goes on to say, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. And this is, this is the most famous verse in Amos because Martin Luther King Jr. made it famous. He quoted it, he used it. Amos is a, it's not the most uplifting book. Uh, you might, if you read it, you're like, wow, I thought this was a life-giving church, right? This is going to be tough. I got to get through it because there's not a whole lot of encouraging things in the book of Amos. Uh, Pastor John did Joel last week, and he's like, wow, there's not a whole lot of encouraging things. How would you like to preach Amos? There's like hardly anything. I picked out all the good ones. The rest of it is, God's ticked off. And it's true. I know. Like, I thought God was supposed to be happy, and I thought he was supposed to be for you and not against you and all these things. He is. This is just a, this is one aspect of, of God's emotions. God is an emotional being. He feels, he loves, he gets angry, he gets sad, he, f- he expresses joy. He is no different from us. Yet we as humans, when we read the Bible and we hear some of this heavy stuff, when we see God getting angry about injustice, we just think that the guy's just mad all the time. And it gets, it's furthest from the truth. But God is a God of justice. And justice is a big deal. It is such a big deal that he was willing to give his only son so that justice will be fulfilled. That's how big of a deal it was. Now, Hosea is a great counter, uh, counter book, uh, a companion book for Amos because Hosea's main theme was unfaithfulness, right? Is, uh, is, is go, we're Gomer, we're the unfaithful wife. We are, we're stepping out and we're whoring around on God. And yet, God is, he is always returning to us. He is always going the extra mile. When we whore around, he gives more. It's, it's amazing to think that God would, would return to us in that way because he loves us so much. But see, Amos is it's like, oh my gosh, that, that, is, that is such an, that's grace. That's amazing grace. And yet when we read the counterpart, when we read Amos and, and God is ticked off, you need to see it as grace too. Because when God is ticked off about injustice, yes, he's gonna, when we are unfaithful, he is going to, Come and rescue us every time. It's going to pull us out of the bars. It's going to pull us out of the brothels. I'm speaking figuratively, hopefully. (laughs) But when we do injustice to one another, God gets angry. If you you have more uh, more than one kid, how many people have more than one kid? Yeah. How do you feel when your kids hate each other's guts and they hurt each other? 
What is the emotion that a parent has when one ch- I see some smiles here. <laughs> That's awesome. What, what are the emotions that you have as a parent when one child hurts another child? It's anger. This is the justifiable emotion that God has. And he's got to play it out. He's got to make sure that justice is served. He's a good, holy God. He's a good, holy God, and he's got to make sure that justice is served. All right. So as a church and as individuals, we need to make sure that our worship doesn't begin to stink. All right. Amos is an interesting character. Uh, Let's just start off with a little bit of history first. I know. I can't help myself. Uh, Back in Kings, Solomon dies in 930. King Solomon, you know, the great... uh, the great son of David, the wisest man that's ever lived. It is Camelot in Israel. It is, it is pure perfection in the form of government. Solomon dies. And his son, Rehoboam, says, man, I am never going to be able to live up to the wisest man that has ever lived. And so right out of the bat, right out of the box, we see Rehoboam, he's taking on this insecurity because he knows that he cannot live up to dad's standards. He knows that he's going to be judged by an entire nation, and they're going to compare him to the wisest man that has ever lived. And so he's got these really harsh insecurities. He was also probably a spoiled brat. We could probably think all kinds of horrible things about Rehoboam, but we know what he did was terrible because he sets the tone for Israel for hundreds of years to come. Because his his counsel, the old guys that were around, Solomon's men, David's men, the wise guys, they, they say, okay, Rehoboam, we're, we're really well off. We control all the trade routes in the Mediterranean, all the trade routes from, from Asia down to Egypt. We have complete control. We are making lots of money. We have lots of wealth and power. You're, you're stepping into something that is really good. So you don't mess it up. And maybe we're just going to give you a little bit of counsel. We're going to give you a little bit of advice. Maybe it's probably a good idea to take this wealth and to spread it around a little bit. Like, let's just ease up on things a bit. And Rehoboam, he, he does not, not only does he not take that advice, he goes in the opposite direction. He listens to his young friends, and his young friends say, if you do not become a strong, powerful leader now, if you do not break their teeth, they will never respect you. And so he puts God's people into basically slavery. So instead of spreading the wealth around, he cranks it down. There is no um, bumping up the minimum wage here. He makes things extremely difficult for farmers, workers, construction people, just to make a living. While everybody else is in palaces and mansions and, and they're just living it up because they have the most powerful economy that's probably ever existed. And yet the poor are being oppressed. And that sets the tone for Israel for years to come. 
Amos, Amos was a blue-collar guy. He was a farmer. He tended uh, trees, fig trees. He was in the southern kingdom of Judah, because we know what happens. Uh, Rehoboam, God doesn't like that Rehoboam is in unjust towards his very own people. He sends Jeroboam. It's confusing, right? Rehoboam, Jeroboam, north, south. So confusing, I know. He sends Jeroboam as a judgment against Rehoboam's greed and power mongering. And so Jeroboam splits the, they, he splits, there's a coup d'etat, he splits the nation in half. Well, kind of. And Jeroboam is no better than Rehoboam, and they, they, they split the nation into civil war, north and south. Hundred years later or so, Amos is in the south in the kingdom of Judah, which is the better of the two brothers, basically. Both brothers are really naughty right now. Israel is the worst. Judah is a little bit better. They have centralized worship in Jerusalem. Uh, Jeroboam has instituted cult worship in Bethel and in Dan, in two locations, because he's smart. And they're very wealthy, too. Israel has a lot of money. So Amos is from the southern kingdom. He is a farmer. He is a... uh, Tends trees. He is in, he's in the hill country of Judah, in Tekoa. He is in earshot of Jerusalem. He hears Jerusalem, he hears the bells ringing, and he hears um, the horns blaring. He's fully aware of what Jerusalem is. He's a part of that Judean culture. Yet God calls him out of his comfort zone to be a prophet in Israel in the, the naughty northern kingdom. He gets called into an area where, they, where he has no experience. I mean, he's not even a prophet. At this point in time, you have to be born a prophet or raised up in a prophet. You have to be born a priest. He is completely outside of, of what he's supposed to do for a career. This is, you don't just change your career in the ancient world like we do here. You don't have that option. We change our career, what, every two years or so? No, you are a farmer for life. And yet God has called him and he takes this huge step, this huge leap of faith, and he goes into the northern kingdom. Have you ever noticed that sometimes our auto mechanics and our construction workers and our blue-collar guys and gals, like sometimes they're the most wisest people on the planet and they can actually get stuff done? It's it's an amazing truth. And Amos is like this. So he goes in to the northern kingdom. Let's start off with chapter 1. And... um, Again, he does not belong here. These are not his people. But he's got away with words. Chapter 1, verse 3. He says, uh, he says to the Israelites, this is what the Lord says. For the three sins of Damascus, even four, I will not turn my back on my wrath. I am going to destroy your enemies, Israel. And they're like, I like this word. This is a good guy. He's like, saying that God's going to kill my enemies. Great. Sign me up. Then he goes on to say in verse 6, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Gaza, those would be the Philistines, 
For the three sins of Gaza, even four, I will not turn my back on my wrath, because they had took captive whole communities, and they sold them off to Edom, slavery. So he's going to go and get the Philistines. And then it goes on to say, at this point in time, he's going to completely wipe the Philistines off the map. This is, uh, you know, Goliath and all these other bad guys. They're gone. And Israel's like, yeah, I like Amos. He's telling me what my ears want to hear. Then he goes on to say, uh, for the three sins of Edom, even four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because they had pursued a brother with a sword, stifling all compassion. So he is going to go out. He's going to wipe out Edom. Very cool. And then Amos even ups the ante. He says this, chapter 2, verse 4. This is what the Lord says. For the three sins of whom? Of Judah, of your brother, of the brother nation, of the guys that you have been in civil war with since the time of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, since that time, God is going to judge and destroy Judah as well. Even for I will not turn back my wrath because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods. That their ancestors have followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortress of Jerusalem. And they're really eating this up because there is huge competition between Jerusalem, which is the centralized place of worship where all the money and all the wealth comes into place, competition between Judah and Bethel and Dan, the other two shrine locations. And they're like, this is exciting stuff, Amos. You should have come over to our side a long time ago because you actually want to destroy Jerusalem. We're on board with you. And then here comes the sucker punch. Here comes the, uh, the backdoor compliment. Here comes the in your face. This is what the Lord says, verse 6. Three sins of Israel, even four. I will not turn my back on my wrath. They sell the righteous for what? Silver. So Israel, the elite in Israel, specifically, I don't have time to get into it, but specifically the tribe of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, the two dominating tribes in the northern kingdom. They are selling their brothers and sisters into slavery for silver. Fascinating. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken and pledged. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. God's ticked off, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. He goes on to say, uh, the rest of the book is really letting Israel have it. Chapter 4, the Lord is, uh, he's, he's going after this, 
that after Bethel, that the, the number one cult site of its time, chapter 4, verse 4, says, bring your, you bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithe every three years. You burn leavened bread and thanks offering, and you brag about your free will offerings. You boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what this is what you love to do, declares the Lord. And here's what's interesting. All right, before I get there, have you ever been stuck in um, the vicious cycle of? Uh, Connecting with God and disconnecting with God, either you know being excited about the Lord or being complacent about it, being faithful or being unfaithful, or yet worse, backsliding. Like maybe it's like the seven-year itch. Every seven years, you just backslide and you blow it. Have you ever found yourself just, you know, what 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 Jesus says? You just like returning to your own vomit, right? You just return, you just like, I don't know, like you think barf tastes good. And so you just, can, you just, you just repeat your own, uh, your own sins again and again. Like God saves you. He does a work. Maybe you even get prayer. You get deliverance. And yet, you still fall back into the, old, the same old stuff. And, and it's like this vicious cycle, right? You just, it just happens over and over and over again, and you feel like you can't break out. But when you, when, you are, when you are sick and tired of being sick and tired, what do you do? You call upon the name of the Lord. And what does he do? When you, when you live an unfaithful lifestyle, what happens every single time you call on the name of the Lord? He hears your call, and he saves you, and he pulls you out of the muck and mire. This is, this is the Hosea Gomer thing. Every single time we're unfaithful, he always returns us to, to his presence, always. He always gets us out of the muck and mire. No matter how many times we blow it, backslide, fall back into sin, be naughty, whatever, whatever you want to call it, he's always faithful and he's always there. He always hears our cries. Now, what if you've taken backsliding to a whole new level and you've hit rock bottom? Don't raise your hands. Have you ever hit rock bottom? Have you ever just blown it so bad, like you have nothing left? Like you are such a pitiful creature that like, you're just like on the floor. You've hit rock bottom, and you just feel like there's nothing left. And with, the, with what energy you do have left, you call upon the name of the Lord, and he saves you. Still, even though you've hit rock bottom, that is how good our God is, yet... Israel is in a different place because there's something wrong with their heart. Like Judah might be good, but Israel's sick. It, like there is a sickness in Israel. There is a perversion. There is a pride. We're talking about the sins of, of Joseph. Joseph was a great guy, but he has, when I say Joseph, I'm talking about the whole nation, that whole tribe, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. They were smart, they, were, they, they, they did well with their money, but they oppressed people, and the, the problem was pride. Now, when you are rock bottom, and you are such a person of pride, 
that like you have nothing left and what energy you do have left to call upon the Lord, instead of calling on the Lord, you say, God, I would rather die than have you help me. That's pride. And that is what Israel's at. Listen, look, look at this. No one's phone has gone off, by the way. Praise hallelujah. It happened first service, and then I read this to the person whose phone went off. Uh, chapter 4, verse 10. I sent plagues among you, <laughs> as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses, and I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. You're sick. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Did you catch that? So like bad things have happened. And they didn't return to the Lord. It gets worse. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So the condition of Israel's heart, the depravity, the addiction to luxury, the decadence is on par with Sodom and Gomorrah. I can't read it today, but there's parts of it that says that, oh, Israel, you have been lounging around on your couches watching Netflix all day long. On your, on your beds of ivory. Ivory is obviously a luxury item, which is highly controversial and disgusting. Uh, I'm an antique dealer my, by my second trade. I don't deal in ivory or Nazi memorabilia. I could have made a lot of money selling Nazi stuff. I decided not to. They actually found loads of decorative artwork in ivory in, in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's, they had this stuff. They were addicted to things, to materialism, to luxury. Uh, so they were on the same, the same uh, pleasure level as Sodom and Gomorrah. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick, snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. You don't ever want you to get to this point where you're just like, you know what, God, you haven't helped me out. I'm really trying hard not to say bad words right now. But do you see what I'm saying? I mean, have you ever, okay, I'm going to do this. You ready? I'm going to do this. Have you ever given God the spiritual middle finger? I know. Not, Kim has never done that. <laughs> but do you see what I'm saying? You can get so disappointed with God, you feel like he's let you down so many times, so instead of calling on him in your time of need, you'd rather just be prideful. Huh? It's a dangerous place to get because God won't rescue you, and he didn't rescue Israel because they didn't want him to. Because when they were on rock bottom, they didn't call out because they were at a point of pride. I love this. This is, this is the, most up, uh, the most inspiring and encouraging thing in the whole book, I think. Chapter th or verse 13. Now, he who forms the mountains and he creates the wind. Ready? Underline this. And reveals his thoughts to man. That's who wants to save you and pull you out of the muck and mire, and yet you are too proudful to connect with a God like that. No other God does this. No other religion says that 
My God wants to reveal his thoughts to us. God wants to, he wants us to get inside of his mind. I have a nine-year-old daughter. I am not revealing my thoughts to her, ever. I am in control. <laughs> so I think. She's got my number. Totally. But you see what I'm saying? God, he wants to be so intimate with us that he wants to share his thoughts with us. Who does that? I mean, that is, again, that's the most encouraging verse in the whole book of Amos. There you go. He who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the high places of the earth. That is Lord God Almighty. Cool. Chapter 6. This is another warning. We don't want to do this. Chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. He's addressing both. This is the, this is the incredible thing about this uh, farm worker. He's saying, woe to you that are complacent in Zion. That's the southern kingdom, Judah. And who are secure, financially stable in the northern kingdom. Amos goes after both brothers at the same time. Then he goes to back and lets uh, Israel have it. You put off the evil day and you bring near a reign of terror. You, oh, I, said, I told you about this. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and on your couches. You dine on choice lamb and fat of calves and you strum away on your harps like David. And you improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlfuls and you use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. That's the poor among them. So complacency and putting our faith in security are traps. Then God gives, uh, he gives Amos a couple of visions in chapter 7. And this is amazing to me. Chapter 7, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing a swarm of locusts after the king's share had been uh, harvested. And just as the second crop was coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He's too small. So the Lord relented. This is called intercession. So Amos is a true prophet. He's like Moses. Because these Israelites, they, God should just smoke them. That would be true justice. Like, Oh, well, God's so mean, right? God of the Old Testament is so mean. Like, we've really got to see it. Did anybody, did anybody have, like, a cringe of remorse when we got bin Laden? Did anybody feel sorry for bin Laden when we got him? No, because it was justice. Right? No one questioned that. 
The liberals didn't question it. The, the conservatives didn't question it. It wasn't controversial. We're like, yeah, we got bin Laden. It's justice, justice happens. Israel's in the same category here. I know it's hard to see because Israel's supposed to be the good guys. They're not. They're selling people into slavery. They're murdering people. They're not, they're not being good. And these are God's chosen people. They deserve justice. Yet, Amos says, forgive them, Lord. He's interceding. He's stepping into the gap. And God says, okay, I'll relent because you're praying for them. Have you ever thought about that? Who should you be praying for right now? Who should you be interceding for? Like, God save them. Is it a family member? A co-worker? Friend? Oh, God save them. Happens again. Sovereign Lord showed me uh, the judgment by fire, and it dried up the great deep and devoured the land. And then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg, stop. How can J- Jacob survive? He's too small. So the Lord relented. So this will not happen either, says the Sovereign Lord, because of an intercessing person. Um, real quick, uh, the first vision that was given was a man-made disaster. The second one was a natural disaster. There's two types of evil, right? There's evil that we do to one another, and then there's natural evil like hurricanes and tornadoes and such. Uh, God has control over both of them. And this is what the Lord showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, the plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied, and the Lord said, look, I'm sending a plumb line among my people Israel, and I will spare them no longer. I think it's an incredible visual. So from heaven, there is this line that comes down, this vertical line, vertical line of justice. And what he's saying, what God is saying, he says, this is the standard. This is, this is heaven down to earth. If you want to be close to me, you need to be in line with my truth. You need, you need, to, you need to be true. You need to line up. You need to come into alignment. And one of the thing about plumb lines is like, when you first get them going, they're waving all over the place. There's a lot of room for grace when we encounter God. It doesn't matter where you're at. But you got to understand that when you are encountering God, his line of grace, it's being pulled by gravity. I don't know, maybe you're circling the drain. No, you are, you are coming into alignment. You're coming into your true self, into truth. And you can't deviate from it. See, God wants you, he's he's drawing us to be closer and closer to his truth and to his justice each and every moment that we spend with him. We're constantly changing. We're constantly coming into center. He's constantly pulling us in to his presence, which is pure and which is true. It's the best thing for us. Really great part about him getting in a fight with the priest after this. It's hilarious. You should read it. (laughs) 
chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 11. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or of thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Okay, did you catch that? Like when our worship is stinking, when we have disconnected from the heart of God, when our worship is stinking, this will happen to us. The days are coming when I will send a famine through the land, and it's not a, it's not a natural one. It's not a one of food and thirst, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea, and they'll wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Why? Why, why, why? Have you, I don't know, I've been in this situation before. Um, have, okay, there's lots of times in our spiritual life when God goes silent. Sometimes he, he goes silent because the Holy Spirit has drawn us into the wilderness. It happens. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. But sometimes God goes silent because it's our fault. And what he's saying here is that you're not going to be able to hear the revelation of God if you don't have his heart for the poor. That's scripture truth, folks. I'm sorry, but it is. We've got to have a heart for justice. If we don't, God's going to stop talking to us. Like, I don't know. There's lots of times when God's gone silent on me. It's so frustrating when he does but there's so much to learn when he does. One time he took me into the wilderness. It was great. Another time he was making my faith my own. That was not fun. Um, but one time God went silent, and I'm just like crying, God, where are you? I thought you loved me. I'm your chosen one. I'm your anointed one. Why don't you talk to me anymore? And it's because it's like, you don't care about people. You're selfish. Do you see? Like, if you're selfish, God will shut up. He will. He'll shut up until you pay attention. It's just the way that he is. It's not because he's mean. It's because he loves us. I'll skip that part. That's really good, though. Some other day. All right, here we go. Chapter 9. God's uh, telling Israel, he's continued telling them, okay, this is, um, there is no escaping justice. This is what God's telling them. There's no escaping justice, and there is um, consequences for behavior. This is what you tell your kids. Can I get an amen? There's consequences for bad behavior. You're going to get a whooping, Right? There's consequences for unjust lifestyles in unjust countries and unjust churches. There just is. So he's going to go through. Okay, here's some of your consequences. There's no escaping justice. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the tops of Mount Carmel, there I will hunt them down and I will seize them. Sounds like we're getting bin Laden, doesn't it? Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. I think that's really fascinating. 
Though they have driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. Heavy stuff, not fun, right? I should have made him preach this one instead of me. Then chapter 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent, the tabernacle, the portable tent shrine. I will, not interestingly enough, not the, not the temple. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places and restore its ruins and build it as it had used to be. Isn't that amazing? I guess, okay, you need to see it this way. Have you ever had a part of your life wrecked? Like some of your life came, the bottom came out, you know, you derailed your life, you made a bad decision, or somebody else derailed your life for you, and it's just like, ugh. John talked about this last week, where we're the locusts that have eaten, God's going to restore what the locusts have eaten. Same concept here. Uh, it has been built, and it will be built back as it used to be. Have you ever sinned? Don't raise your hand. You should raise, everybody should raise your hand. Everybody sinned. There we go. All right. Have you ever been, have you ever sinned and you had to pay the consequences for your sin? Like, didn't, like this time you didn't get that, that grace. Like we get grace on lots of different levels. Like, you know, you drank too much, you're driving around drunk. It is by the grace of God that you didn't kill yourself or somebody else. Somebody's all, you know, we've all had an experience like that. Maybe not. <laughs> I didn't, I've never had that experience. No, I have never done that one. I'll tell you all the other naughty things I've done, but I haven't done that. But do you see what I'm saying, right? It's like, oh my gosh, I should be dead because I did this stupid thing. God saved me. Okay, so sometimes that happens, and sometimes we pay the consequences. And we don't know why God chooses to, you know, to let us pay the consequences or why God graces us. Sometimes we just don't know why, and you can ask him when you go to heaven, but I don't think that you will. All right. Where was I going with that? As it was before. Oh, yeah. As it was before. Even if you have committed this horrible sin that has separated you from the presence of God, or maybe even has separated you from a calling or a purpose or something, you know, God has, has given you an incredible assignment, and yet you blew it, do you know that God wants to restore you back to that place that you were in? We have a terrible um, human moralistic judgment against preachers that have fallen. I mean, I, I believe that they ought to pay the consequences for moral failures. Absolutely. If I commit a moral failure, you need to run me out of the church. You should. It's the right thing to do. Yet, do you know that it is God's desire to restore a fallen preacher back to the place that he was at? It's called restoration. You know, did you ever wreck something in your life? I mean, you have consequences. Maybe you have scars, right? We all carry scars. Maybe you got a really bad tattoo. 
and have that for the rest of your life. Nah, you can take them off nowadays, right? That's great. Um, but God wants to restore us back to our level of intimacy with him always. Back to a level of significance, back to a level of purpose, and then some. He always wants to, to restore us back to where we were. To build it back as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant. It says Edom. I think that's wrong. I need to spend more time on this. It's, it, some scholars say it's the remnant of man. So that they may possess the remnant of men, and that all nations bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken. Basically, he's saying, the day is coming when we're going to be in paradise. This scripture is directly connected to Acts 15. In the council of Jerusalem, like all the guys are there, they're trying to find, oh my gosh, what do we do with all these dirty Gentiles that, that, that want to be Christians? And like, let's circumcise them. <laughs> I'm like, what, really? That's, that's not the way to make people feel comfortable in church. <laughs> and... And what James says is he, James gets up and he says, do you realize that God wants to bring, he wants to restore all nations to him. Like all nations are going to be judged by God, which is a good thing. You want to be judged by Jesus, by the way. You, that's, that's, that's good. You might think being judged is bad, but it's actually a blessing to be judged by your creator. So, so all nations are going to be judged. And we see the Messiah in this verse. That's why, that's, why it's part, that's why Amos is so important. Because God, Jesus, is, he is the answer. He is the promise to restoration for all nations. Amen. James gets up and he says, Amos was talking about Jesus here. We need to let the Gentiles in and not cut off skin. <laughs> it's a bad idea. It's a really bad idea. God wants to restore. He wants to build up. He wants to replace what was taken away. He wants us to have a heart for what he has a heart for, which is justice. He wants us to have a heart for the poor. Um, I, I had to get some clay ice packs for my wife's back last night, and I went all over the place trying to find them. So I ended up in a Walmart. And actually, now that I see it, God called me to Walmart because I encountered the poor in my community. And I, I know I'm such a snob. I'll go to Target, but I won't shop at Walmart. And it, Walmart's closer to my house. Such a snob, right? But, and I'm cheap too. Why don't I shop at Walmart? <laughs> um, but God took me to Walmart last night, and I don't mean this in a joking way, to 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 see the poor in my community, all of which are obese, morbidly obese. And so I got a revelation of the people that we need to serve, and I'm like, oh my God, how, what? Because 
we also have poor in Tanzania that we're not funding right now. So I've got skinny kids that aren't getting food, and then I've got the poor in our community that, are, that you know, the only food that they can afford to buy is making them sick and fat. There's a sickness in our, in our society. And so what God told me, he says, in order for you to be a better worshiper, you've got to have a heart for the poor. And then you have to, like, you need to just, like, quit praying for yourself all the time. All right? When was the last time you prayed for the poor in your prayer life? When was the last time you prayed for racial reconciliation in your prayer life? When was the last time that you prayed for equality in, um, I don't know, whatever you want equality is, whatever we need equality for, but specifically, because Amos is talking about finances specifically. When when was the last time we prayed for that kind of stuff? Or are we just too consumed about our stuff? No, no, see, what Amos is saying is, if we don't want stinking, disgusting worship that God does not accept, then we need to have a heart for the disenfranchised and the poor. They go hand in hand. Now, social justice does not save us. The, Christian, uh, the evangelical Christian church has bought a lie that says that social justice will get you to heaven. That's, that's a gross generalization. It's not true. But if you are saved, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, is Lord, then you will have a heart for social justice issues. You just will. You'll have a heart for the lost. You're going to want to evangelize. You're going to want to go to the food bank. You're going to want to go to Africa. You're going to want to get around a table. And this is complicated times that we live in, right? How do you fix a a little child that's morbidly obese but is poor? No nation has done this. Do you realize that? Like, we're the first nation to do this kind of stuff. It's disgusting. It's a sickness. And we as a church have got to figure it out because our government's not. Uh, policy and social programs cannot fix the heart. They never have and they never will. Only Jesus can fix our heart. And this is what God's called us to do. Uh, there, there was an earthquake in Tanzania this morning, by the way, and uh, our orphanage that we support is fine. Uh, in that aspect, there was, I don't know, like 12 people died, hundreds of people injured. Um, regardless, like our orphanage is underfunded. We need to get around the table and figure out how do we fix this. Um, the, 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 the gap between the world's wealthiest and the world's poor. Um, you know, you know, you've probably heard the figures. Like you know, 95% of the world's wealth is owned by 1% of the people, right? Do you guys know that? All right, you ready for this? If your house is worth $800,000, guess what? You are the 1%. The medium house price in our city is 600000 650000 So this city is the 2%. And when we can't pay our own bills, I know that. You're all broke. I totally get it. Yet, why can't this city, through the Church of Jesus Christ... Why can't it support an orphanage in Tanzania? It should. Why can't it? It's because we're sick. 
I'm not, I'm not saying you're sick, but our society, there's something deeply wrong with our society. And so here's, uh, let's get the band and the ushers come to the front. So here's the take home. Here is the practical application for the book of Amos, for this message. It's, it's, it's a, I think it's a two-prong thing. Like, when you pray, how do you build in God's heart for the poor? How do you build in God's heart for the racially disenfranchised? A racial, racial tension is a super complicated thing, right? Here's what you do. You be nice to people. You can't solve the problem, but you can be a friend, right? So in your prayer life, God, I don't know what to do about the poor in the city of Montclair or Ontario or Pomona. I, that is a mind-boggling thing, but I'm going to commit it to prayer. God, how do I serve the poor in my community? What do I do? How do I serve these overweight kids that don't have any money and they don't have a way to education and they're going to they're gonna die young? These kids are going to die young, by the way. How do, how do we do this, God? God, how do, I, how do I put away my political issues and cultural stuff and how do I just be a friend to somebody that needs to be a friend, whether it's a racial thing or maybe, maybe you just need to be a friend to somebody that's weird, Right? Maybe you just need to, maybe you need to, oh, I should stop. Or should I preach it? All right, just, maybe you should just quit being a jerk and be nice to somebody that's, that makes you feel uncomfortable. And you have, to, you have to commit it to prayer, but I mean, the other points of the Bible will say, you know what, prayer is not good enough. Worship is not good enough. And I know we're all stressed out with time. We're all stressed out with money. We don't have enough time to go around. But you can put this stuff to prayer and say, God, how do I make time to be a servant to those in need? How do I, make it, how do I be a change maker? How do I stop over-spiritualizing stuff and become extremely practical with the kingdom of heaven? How do I do that, God? I guarantee you, if you have that heart, Holy Spirit is going to highlight things. He's going to illuminate things. He will show you specific things. He will do things like you're going to have to be friends with that person. You know, I'll tell you something. Like this week, I have been, actually, I've been unfaithful. It's not a big deal. Um, I have been unfaithful to God in this one area for three months. There was somebody that I just didn't have time to call and take out to lunch. It's that simple. But it was an area of disobedience because I was too dang tired, too dang busy, too broke to buy somebody lunch. And time and time again, it was actually a conviction of the Holy Spirit that says, you need to pick up the phone and call your brother and take him out to lunch. Doesn't go to our church, by the way. And we had the most anointed lunch ever. And that's what life to the fullest is all about. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and I just pray right now that we will just get our attention off of our own needs, off of our own uh, development or whatever, our spiritual development, our you know, self-help spirituality, God. And I pray that you just give us your heart for those that are hurting, those that are lost, those that need you, those that need food, those that need nutrition, those that need health, those that need justice, those that need a breakthrough, those that need a fair deal, God. 
God, we know that we can't change policy, we can't change the world, but we can change a life. We can change a church, we can change a family, we can change a community, and that's all you've called us to do at this moment. But we know that you've called us to so much more and that you're going to restore all things as to what they once were. So give us the courage to pray and to act. We love you, Lord.